Hello and welcome to this week's Renwick Centre podcast. My name is Trudy Smith and I'm the manager of Continuing Professional Education. It's my very great pleasure to be talking to our friend Little Deverell again. Um, but for those of you who didn't tune in last time we talked to Lil, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. Hi, Trudy. Uh, I am an orientation and mobility specialist in midlife. I'm empty nesting because my grown-up kids have launched. Uh, at the moment, I work from home like everyone else in the time of COVID, but also in this curious post-PhD space where there are not a lot of people in Australia who have gone on to do a doctorate in orientation and mobility. And there are five of us and we're really in the process of redefining what work looks like as an academic with a whole skill set in research on top of um, expertise in low vision and blindness and working with people on street corners where I say I do my best work. <laughs> we're going to leave that there. I think that's most but what I want to talk about, and that's so interesting that, that, you know, in terms of you talk about your, you know, academia and your important role in the field, but what we're talking about today is your diagnosis of ADHD. So I'm wondering if you can tell us when, how you were diagnosed, and let's talk about that story. Well, my nephew was actually diagnosed when he was about four. And so my sister had a whole lot of books about ADHD lying around the house, and I idly flicked through and thought, hmm. This is like my daughter, actually. This is like my daughter in the ways in which I'm like my daughter. So, of course, I bounced into work a week or so later and said, guess what? I think I've got ADHD. <laughs> and a colleague looked at me and said, yeah, as if it was just completely obvious. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> and, um, and another colleague had said to me at one point, Lil, your head, it's a mess in there. And uh, I'm kind of conscious that I have a lot of energy and wear people out. Uh, and people say things about me like, this is Lil, she has more energy than a nuclear power plant. <laughs> so, you know, what do you do with all of that? I survived my PhD and came out the other end with a kind of a self-diagnosis of ADHD, but finally thought I'd get around to tracking down uh, a psychiatrist who could confirm or deny. So, you know, let my fingers do the walking and, and found someone with expertise in, in adult diagnosis of ADHD. And sure enough, there's a whole uh, checklist for diagnosis as an adult and then they go back and just confirm what was or wasn't the case during the school years and there was absolutely no doubt by the end of all of that that yeah I'm one of those energizer bunnies um so you know there's a few giveaways like uh, I operate on four or five or six hours sleep a night and just roll from one thing to the next without creating spaces in between and interrupt people in conversation all the time. And I think that the telling thing for me when it came to self-diagnosis was realising that ADHD is not as I had thought of it as a classroom teacher, kids misbehaving in school and bouncing off the walls. It's actually just simply about lack of impulse control. Right. And I learned more about 
I guess um, those characteristics that come together under the category of executive function skills, so it's your front, frontal lobe doing the work of organising your mind and, and sequencing planning, um, looking at time, estimating how long things will take, applying social filters to make sure that you're socially appropriate in different situations, and the chameleon element of that. So if you go from one situation to another to be able to adapt to what's socially appropriate in different places. Um, and really just reining in impulse that leads you to go off and do good or silly things so that you have a little bit more choice about what you do in what order and actually get things finished. Sure. So these all come together as executive function skills and those things are really hard work with ADHD. It's not that we can't do it. It's just bringing it all together in, into some cohesive functional whole is is really hard work so I went along to the psychiatrist and he confirmed my self-diagnosis and said but Lil you know you're in midlife you've got this far you've got a PhD why have you come for diagnosis now and more importantly what do you want to do about it and so I said give me drugs well, we all know that Ritalin <laughs> seems to be you know, what we do for these kids and just well, I wanted to know what this mysterious Ritalin was about and what the other medication options were. So I tried Ritalin, I tried dexamphetamines, but in the process of doing a master's and then a PhD and operating on very little sleep and being hypervigilant about everything, I also got myself hooked on what I fondly call toxic energy drinks. It's a generic category, well, including... For those, for those of you listening at home, she's holding up one of those big... A can of mother. Mother. Yes. Mother. <laughs> Look, I'm not fussy. I don't actually care about flavour. I want the hit. Um, so, you know, being a researcher, I did some systematic trials. I, I just unpacked that, Lil, because I, my understanding of ADHD is that you already have all of that energy in the hip. It's the drink. It's a counterintuitive thing. But what caffeine does, and this is what I discovered through the process, with ADHD, the frontal lobe is sludgy. All those executive function skills don't operate very well and they climb on top of each other and get in a big muddle. What caffeine does is wake up the frontal lobe, help it to operate a little bit more sharply. And it's not actually about wakefulness. A lot of people take coffee to wake up it's about quality of alertness and ability to focus and so caffeine actually sharpens my focus and my ability to distill what's important right now and to choose priorities out of the muddle in my head and bring myself back to task when I'm just feeling really fuzzy. The fuzziness makes me dysfunctional. I can just be immobilised like a deer in the headlights, unable, unable to make decisions. I'll stand in the garden and look at the weeds for 20 minutes, but not work out that I really should go and get the wheelbarrow to put them sure. in and then take them to the compost heap, you know. So that very simple level of deception. Uh, decision making can just be immobilizing and, and yep. caffeine I discovered in my systematic drug trials <laughs> has roughly the same effect as Ritalin or dexamphetamine for, for me and so I said to the the psychiatrist I mean what do you choose the uh the the 
toxic energy drinks available over the counter or in the supermarket that you can buy by the slab or do you go for the controlled meds and he said I don't mind he said just don't take both together yeah I could see if that would well, the issue, the issue, your executive function, yeah. Well, the issue is that some people have panic attacks when they take both together, yeah, right. so that's something to be careful of. But I know plenty of people with uh, ADHD who to, who do get the double hit, yeah. Um, so, so you've got caffeine, that's obviously a really good way to focus your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, and some of us are listening to the, you know, as, as someone else who's also currently doing a PhD, the idea of that much energy is incredibly appealing and attractive. But I guess other than caffeine, what are your strategies for managing in work situations? Um, really important to go with who I am and to acknowledge who I am and to name my strengths and my limitations and be really clear about those. Because otherwise I'm living off some kind of fantasy about who I want to be. And I feel much more earthed if I can name who I am. Mm -hmm. So I know, for example, that if I was to go for a management role, that I could do the people side of things quite well. reasonably good at crucial conversations I delight in people and I can recognize people's skills and plug them into the best kinds of roles ask me to manage a budget (laughs) and I'll start whimpering (laughs) because really any number higher than three is a bit challenging for me and I have to concentrate terribly hard some things I cannot do like there are some number concepts that I just don't get so I mean the concept of estimating how long something will take That's my idea of a nightmare. Um, So, you know, putting dollar values on our work, uh, I haggle with that at a philosophical level and that prevents me actually getting down to doing it at at a practical level. What's my work worth? What's your work worth? And, you know, why is yours worth more than mine? There are questions there about social equity and all that kind of stuff that are far more engaging for me than actually making the budget balance. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, you know, being realistic about my strengths and limitations. And the other thing that I've learned to do is really respect that different kinds of tasks require a different headspace. And my best time for concentration is sometime between about three or four o'clock in the morning and maybe Mm mid-morning so at the moment I'm waking yeah at at probably 4 a.m and I don't uh, like it's a waste of my life to lie there in bed trying to be asleep and not being asleep I just get up and work yeah I get up and get going and sometimes I'll do four hours work or six hours work before breakfast And often that's in my dressing gown. I just go straight from bed to the computer and knuckle down. And then once I get up and move away from the computer, anything could happen. I may or may not come back to what I'm doing. Sometimes I lose the rest of the day because the feather-headedness and the distractibility kick in and I start to get the wonders and, and I'll often do productive things, but they won't be by planning and intention. Okay, so I was going to ask, there must be some negatives too. Um, Well, you could see that as a negative or you could see that as a functional way of getting different kinds of work done. So in the second half of the day, what I try and do is have a bit of a checklist of fragmented things that are worth doing and use that time productively wandering 
somewhat between all of those things and recognising the value of the work that I'm doing, recognising the difference between meaningful work, things that I feel called to achieve versus things that are frittering away you know, time and effort. And I found myself saying often to my kids when they were growing up, I'm not doing that. That's a waste of my life. <laughs> um, and I feel a little bit that way about telly. If I sit down in front of telly, I can lose hours engaging with someone else's um, virtual reality that's a fiction. And I actually want to live a first-person life. Mm -hmm. well, I like that description. Yeah, where I'm engaging with people in the flesh, in relationships that I can have some impact on. Because I feel like my call in life is to be an agent of transformation. And I don't do that by sitting and passively watching someone else's fiction. And I don't want to get to the end of my life and regret, you know, missing sure. a moment. Yeah. So I want to live a life of intention. But because of this planning problem, I can end up just being really quite hypervigilant about work and the tasks that need to be done. So I need to regard myself with a degree of kindness and give myself place to kind of collapse in a heap now and then and be tired and regroup and all that kind of yeah, stuff sure there's probably a few people who are listening to this conversation going you know what i think that's me or i think that's my child or it's my niece or it's my goddaughter or it's that kid in the corner what advice do you have for them if somebody suspects that they or someone they love or work with has adhd I think there is such power in naming things and it's not something to be scared of because I don't believe that ADHD necessarily has to be disabling. It comes with an extraordinary amount of energy and the challenge for me is, and for, for, for people with ADHD is to learn to channel that energy in useful ways. And so if I'm parenting someone with ADHD, then my goal is first of all to say, let's name it and who, you know, who will be a safe person to name that with, finding an appropriate psych psychiatrist who can do the diagnosis. There's a raft of literature around it. And then there's good parenting principles that basically, well, the things that my mum taught me were, Lil, try and finish what you start. <laughs> it's a basic thing. But having had that drilled into me, you know, I, I have a degree of uh, sense of duty, I suppose. If I think it's worth starting and I think it's worth doing, I will try and finish it. It does mean I can have 15 major projects running in parallel at the one time. So there's nothing very simple about ADHD. Um, you end up just juggling complexity constantly. Um, and uh and you know people have said to me oh lil you you do so much you must be really organized i'm going uh you've got to be kidding it's sort of almost the opposite you just go oh that's a good idea i'll do that and start without any kind of analysis of what resources do i have do i have time or commitment um to put it this and i think uh as a parent if you're trying to channel that kind of energy it's not about trying to put the clamps down on how much a person takes on. It's about saying, well, if you're going to do it, do it well. 
Recognise what finished looks like. Let things go when they're done. Move on to the next thing. Um, and it's actually okay to juggle a bunch of things at a time, so long as you feel well and able to do it. It's if it starts to become abusive to yourself or overwhelming or get you completely down, um, then it starts to become more of a limitation or more dis disabling than otherwise. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, reining that energy and learning to channel it in, in useful ways and learning to recognise for myself what's meaningful and worth doing have been really, really important processes. Uh, and I think, you know, part of your sense of what's worth doing comes from family. But I have to say, as a kid at school, I was not the sharpest tool in the shed. I was the dreamer at high school. I used to go off to the sick bay if I felt a bit dopey in the afternoon because it's just all too hard, all that concentration. And I'd go and have a little sleep. I don't think I ever told my parents about that. <laughs> Oops, my <Hi>, mum. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt all the better for it. And even now, I think a power nap on the couch is a wonderful thing. You know, I recharge and it's a bit easier to corral my thoughts other wise i think it's about recognizing good times in the day for concentration and times when your brain goes a little bit more fudgy and allowing for those fudgy times and just working with them and categorizing tasks so there are i sort of think about projects versus jobs projects are things that require three or four hour stints of dedicated concentration without interruption and they're the kinds of things I'll do before breakfast in the morning before the email starts pinging and before the the phone starts ringing but during the day it might just come down to having a list of jobs that in theory should take five minutes in reality because I get distracted between each one can take half an hour or two hours but if they're listed there I just chip away at them and accept that you can only do what you can fit into 24 hours. Absolutely. So having a plan as well. So well, this... plan might be overstating it, Trudy. <laughs> I actually wanted to say something about that because um, there's a whole lot in the business literature about planning being essential mm -hmm. for succeeding. Like you hear that, you know, failing to plan is planning, right? Exactly. I would just like to say rubbish. If you have a clear intention of what you want to achieve and a clear picture of quality that you're aiming for and what you, um, what's good enough as an end point, then with ADHD, it can just kill you to try and sit down and plan the process. It just doesn't work. It's laboured. It's hard work. It's, you, you don't know how to come to, to decision about all of those things in one sitting. But if you have a clear idea of where you're heading and what you're aiming for and the courage to start and a good sense of what resources there are available in terms of people to help along the way, then you just do what comes next. Yep. And when you've achieved that, you just do the next thing that comes next. And I first realised that this is a very different way of tackling life when I was a bit bored at home with two babies and had to pack the nappy bag to go out the door to engage with other parents and hear their stories and feel nourished and informed by that. I thought what I really want is a book of stories about early parenting, real people, 
I thought someone should write this book about early mothering and breastfeeding. Why didn't someone write it? And I <laughs> aired the idea and lots of people thought it was a great idea. And you know, I was, you know, explained exactly what it would be like and then realised no one was going to do it. So I might as well just start collecting mm -hmm. stories. Sure. And I did. And after seven years, I published Learning to Breastfeed, women's stories about boobs, babes and being a mum. Oh, I like it. And it's great. Seven, 70 women's stories ranging between half a page and 10 pages. And because I was thinking, you know, if you only tell two or three stories, people might have the idea that these represent what their experience should be. But if there are lots of stories, then you kind of find yourself somewhere in the midst of all of them. I'm hearing the researcher in you, Lil, with that. I know, I know. It's numbers and those sorts of things. And I, I guess I want to... I want you, you know, you, I can hear you, the structures that you have in place. And I really want to talk about the importance of family systems and, and thoughtful relationship choices. And as mothers juggling two babies at home and, and those sorts of things, the partner that you choose to do that with would be really, is, is really important anyway. But I imagine with an ADHD diagnosis or undiagnosed at the time, you, your, your perspective of what your partner brings to how he supports you it, it's an interesting thing. I found myself going to the psychiatrist and saying, well, I, I do seem to have, you know, I've just passed 30 years of marriage. I married at 22. And I said to the psychiatrist, I seem to have chosen someone who's a really kind of solid anchor. He's very, he loves his routines. And you know, I could see that as all terribly tying down and tedious but actually for me it's life-giving because I can just be immobilized with option anxiety I just you know it does my head in my daughter said oh what's your favorite color mum I thought, ah, do I have to choose it's too hard. <laughs> um, and so Gary just by virtue of the fact that he loves rituals and routines and he's a reliable steady kind of fellow um, he becomes an anchor point and it's not that he decides for me what I should, must, ought do. It's just that he states very firmly what he will do and I will make my decisions against that very solid reference point. And that means that in midlife, um, I find it very freeing actually that I'm married to a particular person. I have two particular daughters. We live in a, in a particular place with certain limitations and that's far more empowering than I felt in my 20s where the world felt like my oyster and there were so many choices that I didn't know how to to settle into anyone and the psychiatrist said to me you would be astonished at how many people with ADHD settle in very young with one person who helps to become that reference point as they navigate through life and I haven't I have family members with and without a diagnosis of ADHD and the most recent one to be diagnosed is a, a nephew um, at the age of about nine and he's a very bright kid but you know he's been beating up on his family members since he was two mm -hmm. when his impulsivity and rage get to him and as you can imagine that kind of angry approach to life can really compromise your social relationships in the playground and at school and his dad quite rightly recognized that quite apart from his academic progress it was worth addressing this issue from a social point of view because actually in the indecision in that muddled head 
we use people to navigate life. People give us worked examples for how to do things. Yeah. Um, and that's so much easier than trying to work it out for yourself. And so if you beat up on people or have snarky, unhealthy relationships with them, it's worth getting the ADHD diagnosis and the meds just to streamline some of that social behaviour and make that a little bit easier. Because those social relationships and the health of them become your lifeblood as you move before move forward with ADHD it's just too hard to do on your own yep and that makes perfect sense because you need yeah the world around you and that's that social connection as you said the reference points and if you're pushing everybody away then you have no chance of developing that yeah yeah interesting yep. well it's been such an honor to have you share your story with us I'm really grateful for your level of honesty and and compassion as you're telling us about ADHD and, and how it's manifested for you. So thank you so much for, for sharing with us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Trudy. And for anyone that's um, concerned about that, we absolutely encourage you to go and put a name on it or, or you know, have a listen and um, we can put some references as well for you to follow up as well. But for now, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks again, Lil.